Um, we've been the inspiration for our current series of sermons has been from a book by Tim McConnell entitled Happy Church. And I enjoyed reading it, and maybe you will too if you can add it to your reading list, if you have room on your reading list. And we know because of the revelation of God's Spirit that each of us is richly deserving of God's righteous judgment because we have sinned against Him. We are wholly undeserving of His love and mercy. There's nothing good in us, nothing worthy in us. Psalm 14, verse 2 and 3 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. But all have turned away, all have become corrupt, and there is no one who does good, not even one. Isaiah in chapter 53, the first part of verse 6, describes all of us in our unredeemed state. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way. And turning to our own way, we turned away from God's way. But the second part of that verse contains the cause for happiness. Isaiah says, but the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. We are those who have through, though righteously condemned to death, have been spared, but more than merely spared, we're forgiven. We're embraced. We're loved. We're blessed by the Father and adopted into His eternal family. So the premise of the book, Happy Church, is very simple. We should be the happiest people on earth. So why aren't we? McConnell makes this statement later in the book, which kind of made me cringe, both with some sadness and some anger. He said, The church in the Western world is declining. Church has developed such a bad reputation that some will be surprised I even choose to use the word. Many pastors avoid saying church at all, as impossible as that is, because too many people associate the word church with a bad experience, a time when they visited a dark and musty building filled with little or no joy, where the people whispered and wept in dark shadows. It just makes me so sad that people think of church that way, but they do. Church is a place that's supposed to be filled with joy because we've been redeemed. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand the great blessing, the great happiness that's ours because we now belong to you. Help us not just to understand it, Lord, but also to know it in our hearts and our lives daily. Allow us to experience that joy unspeakable and full of glory which you purchased for us with your blood. And then help us, Lord, to share that joy that comes from knowing you and the great love you have for us with others.
who so desperately need to know your forgiveness and your grace and your love. Amen. So there are many reasons as the church that we have to be happy. Joyous people. We've been exploring some of them in this latest series. And I want to offer one more today. So turn or scroll in your Bibles to Matthew 22. This is one of the stories, parables, that Jesus tells when he visited the temple in Jerusalem. And you're actually in this story. So uh, as you find your way over to Matthew, I want to describe the wedding custom and chronology of marriage in biblical times. Uh, Through Global Connections, we've met a number of Indian couples who have shared with us their, uh, their marriage customs and ceremonies, and they are in many respects uh, similar to those of uh, biblical times. So this is, these are Eastern, not Western, customs. There's basically three parts to a marriage. First is a marriage contract, which is signed by the parents of the bride and groom. And the parents of the bride and groom, or the bridegroom himself, would pay a dowry to the bride, Uh, or her parents. And this began what was called the betrothal period, what we would call today the engagement. This is the period where Joseph and Mary were when she was found to be with child in Matthew uh, 1.18. The second step in the marriage process usually occurred like a year later when the bridegroom, accompanied by his male friends, went to the house of the bride at midnight creating like a torchlight parade through the streets. And the bride would know in advance this was coming, so she would be ready with her maidens, and they would all join the parade and end up at the bridegroom's home. This custom is the basis of the parable of the ten virgins told in Matthew 25. The third phase was the marriage supper itself, which might go on for days uh, like the wedding at Canaan in John 2, at which Jesus performed his first miracle, the turning of water into wine. As a, a, funny, as a funny aside, we were talking to one of these Indian couples, and uh, this whole procession to get the bride um, is traditional that they ride a horse uh, to the bride's, the, the bridegroom rides this horse to the, to the bride's house. And um, from his house to her house, but but if his, if her house is like sixty miles sixty miles away, what they do is he'll get on a horse and ride just outside his house. They he hops in a limo. They load the horse in a trailer, <laughs> drive across town. And he gets back on it. Anyway, just kind of funny. The story in Matthew twenty two that we're going to look at takes place just prior to this third phase, the marriage supper. So we'll start reading here. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, must click slide. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. And he sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. But they refused to come. And then he sent some more servants and said, 
tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention. And they went off, one to his field, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees weren't at all unclear about the meaning of Jesus' parable. They knew he was talking about them. And they immediately tried to start finding ways to arrest him. The only reason they didn't seize him immediately was they were afraid of the crowd. Because the people held that he was a prophet. And the people were absolutely correct. He was a prophet. And he was coming as a prophet, priest, and king. So let's identify the characters in this story. First of all, the king, obviously, is God the Father. The God of Israel, the chosen people, the people of the covenant of Abraham. The son for whom the wedding banquet is being prepared is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The servants bearing the invitations are the prophets, including the most recent one, John the Baptist, who was essentially crying out in the wilderness, even at the last hour, people of Israel, it is not too late to accept the invitation of the king. So the king sends out invitations twice. First time they're ignored. The second time, they're not just ignored, but to add insult to injury, they not only tear up the invitations, but mistreat the servants and kill them. It was tough being a postal worker in those days. So John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 11, says of Jesus, He came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. And again in Mark 12.10, it says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In Luke thirteen thirty four, Jerusalem, Jesus is speaking, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. So needless to say, the king is not happy with how his gracious invitation to his son's wedding was received. First thing he does is he destroys those who murdered his servants, burns their city to the ground. Now a side note, 66 years after the death of Christ, Titus, the son of Vespasian, who was one of the Roman Imbra, Nero's generals, led an attack on the city of Jerusalem. Thousands were slaughtered, and it culminated in the burning of the Jewish temple. A fragment of the outer wall remains today. It's known as the Wailing Wall, and the Wailing recalls the destruction of the temple. In 637 B.C., a Muslim mosque 
called the Dome of the Rock, was constructed on the site of the destroyed temple. There has not been a Jewish temple since that day nearly 2,000 years ago. So remember, I said, listen carefully to this story because you're in this parable. So you might be asking, okay, like, where am I? Where am I in this parable? Well, the answer is, up to this point in the story, you are absolutely nowhere. In fact, to put this into a Western context, the people invited to this wedding banquet are dukes and earls and princes and cardinals, family members, prestigious individuals of state, religion, and commerce. You are a filthy, dirty, grubby little peasant who isn't even on the radar. In fact, the servants delivering these invitations don't even look at you as you choke on the dust kicked up by their horse riding by. That's where you are right now. But here's what the king does next. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So, go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Paul, quoting Hosea 2, speaks to this in Romans 9.25, he says, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my beloved who is not my beloved. And this is where you come into the story. We are the street corner folk. Here's my kind of like three dramatizations of these new invitees. All right, so he said, go out. Invite the good and the bad. So my first example would be like there's this like simple tailor and his wife. And he comes into her and he goes, Sarah, you know, the king's son's getting married. And she goes, yeah, yeah, I know. He's a nice young lad. It's been in all the papers. It's great. He goes, well, you won't believe it. The king's servants were just here and they invited us to come to the wedding. And she's like, go on. He goes, no, really. She's like, well, I don't have anything to wear to a king's wedding. He goes, hey, no problem. Because they they left these clothes here for us. That's my first example. So they're kind of good. You know, they're a nice couple. So then we come across this guy in an alley, you know. and, And he's talking to this guy. And he's saying, uh. You know, now, this liar once belonged to King David himself, and uh, I'd be willing to let you have it for just three shekels. He feels a tap on the shoulder. One of the king's servants, he's going, hey, you're invited to the king's son's wedding. He's like, really? Okay. And uh, here, make sure you wear these. He gives him some clothes. So that's kind of the bad guy that was invited. He's kind of a hustler. All right, so then there's a third guy. Bear with me. <laughs> so there's a third guy. He, he's kind of hanging around outside the entrance to this wedding feast. 
And he comes up to the door and he starts chatting with the doorkeepers. And he's, he's like, oh yeah, King's son, we're old schoolmates. I've been looking forward to this for ages. So he slides in past the doorkeepers, disappears into the crowd. They kind of look at each other and go, no, okay. Now we pick up the text again. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He's our name-dropping party crasher right there at the end. Remember him? Just slid in. And he asked the man, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was like, I got nothing. He's speechless. The king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. See, lots of people heard about this wedding banquet. And everybody wants to go to the wedding banquet. But there's a rather strict dress code. We'll talk about that more in a minute. So Jesus encapsulates the entire history of God's relationship with the nation of Israel in a very simple story. But here's the twist. This is not just a story. This is also a prophetic announcement of a real event yet to come. Turn over to Revelation 19, verse 6. This is John speaking. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, And like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Who is this bride? It's you. It's the church. It's the bride of Christ. And it goes on. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And I would just add here, these are righteous deeds which are the outcome of us being clothed in the righteousness imputed to us by being in Christ They're not pure and bright because of human effort, but because they're washed in the blood of the Lamb. They're not garments we have stitched together ourselves. They were given to us to wear to the wedding feast. And the angel said to me, write this, Those who are asked to the wedding supper of the Lamb are happy. This is one of the reasons that we should be happy, brothers and sisters. 
Who are those who are invited? You. And you will be doubly present at this feast, this future feast. Not only are you guests of the king, but you're there as part of the bride betrothed. That's a mystery. There's some very deep and beautiful things there. So then the angel goes on and he gives further emphasis to this proclamation by saying, these are the true words of God. So why should we be happy? Because once you were not a people, once you were not invited, now you are the people of God. Now you are invited. Once you had not received mercy, once you had no clothes to wear, And now you have received mercy. Now you have fine linen. I want to take a little side trip to Kenya here. A few years ago, Wendy and I went to Kenya to work with Harmon Parker and building, bridging the gap and help build two footbridges there for uh, marginalized tribal people. One of the places where we built a bridge was in Pokot, which is far up in the north of Kenya, near the Ugandan border. And it was, a, it was a really remarkable experience. And at the bridge site in Pokot, the whole village came out to help in building the bridge and in the end to celebrate. That's kind of what this bridge looks like. And this bridge, although it might seem like a small thing to us, it was huge to these people because they regularly lose people to drowning, to hippo attacks, to crocodiles. There's crocodiles in that water there. Um, Every year it happens. So these bridges have an enormous impact on their quality of life. So as we're finishing up the bridge on the last day, as usual, there was these little children running around. And uh, I'll show you. There's, There's some of them. (laughs) <laughs> and they were really just great kids, uh, and they were always hanging around and working with us, and uh, I love that one of Parman. And uh, that's Tom Clark, who a lot of you know there, uh, who was with us on the trip. But these little kids, they were just so happy. That might be one of my favorite pictures I took while I was there. They were so happy. And the reason they were so happy soon became apparent. So I I went off down this trail in the jungle with a couple of the guys. And uh, our purpose in going off down this trail was, uh, and some of these young men I found out later are cattle rustlers (laughs) who had left their AK-47s like out in a tree beyond where we were working. Um, But the purpose of going off down this trail was to slaughter a goat. And actually this was, there's the goat in question. This was actually why these little kids were so happy. And I actually filmed the slaughter, which I'll spare you. But the animal is held down and an artery in the neck is cut with a knife. 
and then it's bled out into a bowl until it dies. And later, the congealed blood is shared among the celebrants. I managed to get out of that. And that sounds brutal, but it's because in modern America, we're very far separated from our meat production. Our meat usually comes from an aisle at Kroger's and not as a result of a bloody, sweaty struggle with an animal down a jungle trail. But these people rarely eat meat. Actually, they rarely get much to eat at all. It's mainly a diet, starchy diet, of the stuff called ugali, which I ate a good bit of while I was there. It tastes like a cross between grits and cardboard. Goats are everywhere in Kenya. But they're not food, they're wealth. It would be like you leading your checkbook around on a leash. So why were these little boys, these little girls, so happy? Because they knew something. They knew that once the blood had been spilt, that there would be a feast. Why should we be happy? Because there's a future feast coming. And by the grace and mercy of God, we're invited. The blood of the Lamb has been spilt. There will be a feast. There will be a celebration in heaven. The bridegroom will be united with his bride. These are the true words of God. And you're invited. The marriage supper of the Lamb is the celebration of Jesus finally uniting with the one He so longs for. Excuse me. The one He so longs for with all His heart. That's you, the church. The ecclesia, the called out ones, the chosen ones. You know, you think a lot that you long to be with Jesus. Consider this, how much he longs to be with you, to be with his bride. For his bride, he endured everything, the beating and the mocking and the shame and the humiliation and the separation from the perfect fellowship he had with his father as he took his, our sin on himself and endured a painful death. He endured that for his bride. And Paul speaks of this in Hebrews 12 where he says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. What was this joy set before him that enabled him to endure all of this? It was you. It was his bride. You are his joy. 
For you he endured. There are many, many things in God's word which are beautifully mysterious. And perhaps one of the most beautiful being the mystery of Christ and his bride. Paul speaks of it a little in Ephesians 5 when giving instruction to husbands about how they ought to regard their wives. Where he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a glorious church without stain or wrinkle or any such blemish, but holy and blameless. Or in the words of the passage from Revelation we read earlier, clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am speaking about Christ and the church. So if you don't know Christ today, the Father is inviting you to come to him and receive his forgiveness and respond in your heart to his grace. Tell the Father today you want to accept the invitation to the wedding feast. That you want to be part of that wonderful celebration when Christ is united with His bride. You know, if you walk by a party, a place where they're having a party like a union hall or whatever, grand ballroom, maybe like a back door is propped open to let in some air. And you hear all the music and the laughter and the light pouring out through that open door. And God is saying, come on in. Come on in. Come join the party. Because there will be a day when that door slowly closes. And there'll just be a sliver of light. And then just silence and darkness and weeping outside because it will never be opened again. So as we take communion today, let's remember this future feast. And remember that the invitations sent out for it are stained with blood. And be thankful. And as we head back to the gym for our potluck, maybe look across the table at that brother or sister and consider someday we'll dine together at the king's table. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though we are undeserving, that we were not on the guest list, that you invited us. You invited us 
to join your family. You redeemed us, Lord God. We thank you, Lord. Help us to know, Lord, the joy of our salvation, to experience the joy of our salvation every day so we can share that joy and that love with others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.